So I show up in the city, get out of the Uber, get into the hotel. I'm like, ooh, this lobby looks so nice. It's like industrial, got a cool style. I'm checking in. They tell me my room's not ready, but I'm like, that's okay. Where can I get lunch? They tell me, oh, there's a great place around the corner near the museum. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go there. And then I look in my pockets. I check my backpack and I can't find my phone. And I knew like, uh oh. So then I'm like, wait, I can find it. Open up my laptop. Do you find my iPhone? Then I see it. Oh, it's right where I got out of the Uber. But I'm like, oh, no one's going to steal it. Because like, why would they? Get out there. There's a group of people sitting outside the Starbucks. I see my phone. I pick it up. And they're like, oh, your phone. And I'm like, yeah, I found it. Great. Walk back to the hotel. Go to lunch. And then I come back, ready to check in because they've texted me, told me my room is ready. I'm like, yeah, I've had a good day already. I went to the museum for a little bit. Come back. And I'm like, can I have my luggage? And they're like, yeah, sure. Then they go in the closet where I saw them put it. And they're like, oh, no, it's not here. Are you sure they put it in here? And I was like, I watched him walk it in. He told me I'm putting your luggage here just so you know. And then I spent 30 minutes then with them saying, walking around looking for my luggage. And I'm like, this luggage is not here. So I pull out my phone, my, my computer, and I look it up because I can now do find my computer. And I see my computer blinking 45 minutes away at a gas station. So I walk over to the front desk and I say, hey, my computer is 45 minutes away at a gas station. This is Rambles and Doodles, the research and development podcast, and today we're going to be talking about Borderlands. I mean, I eventually found my luggage, and this all happened when on a whim last fall, I decided to book a trip to Montgomery, Alabama. So my work as a facilitator of organizational change processes with a focus on racial equity or justice has me spending a lot of time reading through resources and thinking about racism and trying to keep up with what is new, what is current. And so one day I was like going down a rabbit hole of looking up the Legacy Museum uh, from enslavement to mass incarceration. And so I was looking through the pictures, I was looking through the information, and something about the way the story was being told about racism in America just felt so clear. And yet I was like, I can't quite feel what it is, but if I go there, I'm going to feel something. And so I do what I always do. I texted a person and said, I think I should go to Montgomery, Alabama to go to this place. And before they could respond back, yes, I think you should go, I had already booked a flight. And then I was already looking for a hotel. And so when I got there, I knew why I was called. The museum begins with a large screen when you walk in. It's maybe 40 feet high. There's just waves of water crashing. And you're sitting in a dark space. And all you can hear is the water rushing at you. You get the sense that you're moving too, although you're standing still. I remember feeling like suffocated and yet in the expansiveness of water, like why? And the space is trying to make you think of what it would be like to be leaving your home in open water and thinking about 
where you're going and having no idea. And even without chains, even without being an experience, you could feel like you're powerless. I sat in that space for a while, let myself feel it, and then went around the corner. And there I saw a map. And so I see a map and I'm like, okay, this is where I can start to see something more curious, something more um, like intellectual, like, okay, this is about data. This is about looking at ships and what they're showing you is how many ships left over a period of time with enslaved Africans to the Americas. So I'm watching and you just see over time that there are more and more ships, more and more ships. And then you see there are less and less and less. And then the loop ends and then a clip comes on to tell you what's happening. And for some reason I was like, oh, I didn't get to see the beginning. Let me watch the beginning. And that's where I knew why I came is that the first ship that it ever left Africa was from Cabo Verde. And I had always known that that was the birthplace of enslavement. And maybe historically that's not quite accurate, but there's something about the way we've moved, the way it feels so indoctrinated in us to think about race, to think about caste, that it must have been the place we had lots of practice to think about this and to, um, to really enslave people, not only in their bodies, but in their minds. And there's a connection for me always about who got moved to Cape Verde, who stayed there, and then who came to America, the Americas. And I've always thought about there could be people here on this land that are related to me, that we share ancestry. And so to see the beginning of what this story may have been if one of my ancestors got on a different ship, if their ship had actually left the port in Cape Verde instead of staying. And part of the other part of the story, right, is that I'm also white passing, which means there are people in my story who are the enslavers. And there's a complexity in that and holding both in that while my family wasn't white and while they didn't live a life as being white on the island, there is a place that they straddled. They had to think about all these different identities. And what I really know about Cape Verde is that it was intentional to create this hierarchy. I want us to think about borderlands and to think about what it means to sit on them. And I'll talk more about that. But I want to give you the tip that if you're going to go to Montgomery, Alabama, if you're going to go to this museum, which I highly recommend if you really want a comprehensive understanding of enslavement and the way it's continued to our time now, um, you should go and take your time. I did it over four days. I did it slowly because understanding strategies of dehumanization takes time for us to hold in our bodies, takes time for us to understand. And then we have to understand where do we sit in that? And for me, what I understood was like, I sit on both sides of this as both oppressor and oppressed. And what allows me to see, what can I see from that vantage point? What does it allow me to hold myself accountable to? Um, is something that I find really important and I invite you to do the same. So the term borderlands comes from Gloria Azandua. And it's a poem and also a book where she talks about being mestiza, about being Mexican, being Mexican-American, being all these different identities. And I read it for the first time in a course taught by Lazaro Lima, who was this amazing professor who invited us to think about our identities and to write memoirs about who we are. 
but first we had to really explore what these different things could be. And so in one of the stanzas of the poem, she writes, in the borderlands, you are the battleground where enemies are kin to each other. You are at home, a stranger. The border disputes have been settled. The volley of shots have scattered the truce. You are wounded, lost in action, dead, fighting back. So the line, you are the battleground, has always stuck with me as how my body, how my experience has felt the place where there's an intersection around race. It's the place where you have to conf- have to actually confront what it means to be mixed identity. How did you get that way? Was it a story of pain? Was it a story of love? How did it emerge over time? And so this concept of borderlands is about what are the borders we sit on? What are these different identities and what does it mean to sit on them and look out from a vantage point of what that provides with us? Rather than picking a side, rather than having to check a box, you get to say, actually, this is where I rest. And in my liberation, this is where it is. Cape Verde is an island or a group of islands that oftentimes is lost on a map. And so again, that's why I could find it in Montgomery, Alabama. I'm always searching for those little dots that sometimes get left out. And part of that island story is that, and what they say, and what we know for now, is that no one lived there, and the Portuguese came as the first colonizers of the space and brought enslaved Africans to the land that was rich and decided that that's where they were going to start practicing or cultivating the land. and while doing that and getting resources, they were also going to practice this way of enslaving people. And it's really complicated and hard to say that in such a light way, and I don't mean it lightly, but this was an intentional process. This was not something that happened by mistake. They talked about shaming in public. That was the first space Africans had witnessed a public humiliation or shaming or lashing of another human being, they introduced that concept into the space. They also introduced this concept of, actually, we can make this island full of the good Blacks. And I put that in quotes. And they thought of, we could be the model. And not only are you enslaving people's bodies, but we can actually enslave their minds by ripping from, ripping from their culture, taking things away from them. And so when you look at Cape Verdean cuisine, there's an intention. There's a reason why we eat chickpeas. There aren't chickpeas from where we are in Western Africa. That's what the Portuguese eat. Codfish. They chose and they decided if we didn't have our food, if we didn't have our language, then we couldn't be who we were, but they could recreate our identities and they could create a new hierarchy. And part of that hierarchy is that it's not just black and white, but we're going to create this mixed race. We're going to create different. Um, layers of color. We're going to talk about those colors. It's going to be part of who they are. And one of the ways they did that is like when they realized there were too many uh, black people on the island, they brought more white men to the island. And that to me is always signaling of like, that's what's in my body. That's what I have known to be true, that this identity is created for a reason. It's created to create more oppression. And what I'm trying to figure out is that actually, how is it liberating? What is it that I can see from the space now? What can we understand about who we are, who I am, and how oppression 
is designed. And so when I say I want to sit on the borderlands, it's really a practice of me wanting to always be there. It's a I have to return to it whenever I find myself getting too binary or trying to be too much of one thing or trying to see something from one perspective. I remind myself there's the border. There's the borderland. There's a place where everything exists. There's a place that I can invite people to. And so when I'm facilitating, I'm always trying to get us to that borderland. And to me, the borderland is our humanity. It's where we say we're all the things. And that's not to discredit the importance of understanding race and to understand the way it plays out day to day in real life. Um, And that's important to say right now and all of the time. And I have to think about my liberation and I have to think about where that could be and where does that sit. When When I return to the borderlands, I can feel the openness and the expansiveness of who we could become. If this construct of race wasn't put on us, was it indoctrinated in us? I often return back to my body, to my physical appearance, because in it and looking at it and sitting with what I look like, how I present myself, what people think I am, always getting that question of who are, what are you, where are you from, and always being told, you don't look like that. Oh, I wouldn't think you were this, but I think you're this, but you're not really that. And the idea of having to sit in that is one, my body is a place for respite. And yet it's also the battleground where I have to think about race and gender. And I've always noticed something different about myself. I was the kid playing basketball with eyeliner and like really in really baggy shorts. I wanted to um, be who I was fully. And it wasn't about being one thing or another thing, but really like I lived with both of that masculinity and femininity lived in me. And they were things that I wanted to bring out at different times. And so when I can sit in the border and think about the world can feel expansive, it can be open without lines. And yet something about the way we're moving concerns me that we're getting more tight in our boxes And so I invite us to think about where the borderlands, where we can feel full, where it's not a box, but really a long line that we can sit on and we can straddle to think about what is possible and what is different and who do we want to become. I'll read you this last piece from Gloria Zandua and the way she ends the poem Borderlands. To survive the borderlands, you must live sin fronteras, be a crossroads. And so I want you to think about what are the borders you sit on, that you stand in, that you live through in your identities, in your experiences. How are you living without borders right now in your life? And how may that be the place where you can practice your liberation? Thank you for listening to Rambles and Doodles, a podcast created, hosted, and edited by Melinda Barboza and produced by Marlies West.